as we're in the scriptures this morning, uh, Father, I pray that we gain a little bit more of your perspective and your heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at a shortest book in the Old Testament, one chapter long, book of Obadiah. And if you remember, it was kind of what we might call a cautionary tale to proud Gentiles, specifically in Obadiah, Edom, about not kicking the Jews, God's chosen people, when they were down. Obadiah was a cautionary tale to proud Gentiles not to kick the Jews, God's chosen people, when they were down. This morning, the tables are turned 180 degrees. And this morning, we read a cautionary tale written to Jews about not undervaluing Gentiles. And it's somewhat ironic. I'm thinking about this this morning as I'm listening to the news. Israel's bombing Lebanon. Hezbollah's bombing is sending missiles into Israel. Israel's in the news, and, and this is not a surprise, you know, if you study the scriptures, Israel's going to be in the news until the end. But we talked about Gentiles' treatment of Israel. Last week, we're talking about Israel's treatment or heart towards Gentiles this morning in the book of Jonah. You know, if you've read the book, and Jonah's got to be one of the best known of the Old Testament stories, primarily in the sense of incredulity. You know, who, who could believe that a fish or a whale could swallow a man? It's best known because of that element of the story. You know, we won't touch, we'll hardly even talk about the fishy elements of Jonah. You know, the story where the fish catches the man. If you read this story, it's only four chapters long, kind of like the book of Ruth. It's a very straightforward told story. But the truth is, if you read it and if you just muse on it a little bit, there's all kinds of literary devices. There's irony, very ironic story, lots of good stuff. Jonah, the Jew, is not the hero. He's the anti-hero. The Gentiles in the story are the heroes, not the villains. It's an upside-down kind of story. There's lots in it. I read in preparation James Montgomery Boyce's commentary, and it's very pastoral. It's not academic at all, but very, very helpful, very colorful, very insightful. If you've got one of those, his commentaries, or you can get your hands on it, or you can borrow mine. That'd be fine. It's very helpful. But instead of looking at all kinds of things that we could in the story of Jonah this morning, we'll end up focusing on only two, and, and they are these. The first is, through Jonah, God demonstrates his desire to restore people to himself, to restore his own people to himself. And then beyond that, secondarily, his desire is to restore to those people that he's restored back to himself, is to give them his compassion or his viewpoint or his heart on others outside the fold. We could say Jonah's a story about loving God, and loving others. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. And who's your neighbor? Well, the world's your neighbor in the end. Jonah, like some of the other prophets we've already talked about in Madrine, in the Minor Prophets, he lived during Israel's heyday when Israel, that northern nation, was very prosperous. Things were great. They were really looking up. But it wouldn't be long before they'd be destroyed. And they'd be destroyed by the nation Jonah is called to go and speak to, the Assyrians. In 722, the northern nation of Israel is destroyed by the Assyrians. Jonah's name means dove, which is really funny. You know, we talk about hawks and doves. Jonah was not a dove. 
in his personality or his outlook towards his Gentile neighbors, the Assyrians. He was a hawk. But maybe he's like the dove on Noah's ark, you know, the dove that flies around and comes back and brings signs of life. Well, Jonah brings a sign of life to the Ninevites. We're going to jump in. We won't read all of Jonah, even though it is short, but we will read some passages starting at chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be parked there, so if you've got your Bible, feel free to turn to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. By the way, if you recognize those phrases, verse 2, do you remember another Old Testament story where God says, The cry of their wickedness has come up before me. That was Sodom and Gomorrah in which God destroyed those cities. We hear this phrase, we're thinking, sinful Gentiles, God's got something coming for them. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, that is a coastal city, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So here's Jonah. God says, hey, my man, I want you to head east, overland. I want you to go to that great city, Nineveh, and I want you to warn them that I'm going to judge them. And Jonah just doesn't want want much to do with this. And you know, why is that? What's the deal? Nineveh, of course, the capital of Assyria. And if you read anything about the Assyrians, this was an incredibly violent people. And in, in fact, later they'll talk about violence specifically. Very, very violent people. And they're to the east of Israel. And again, maybe even within Jonah's lifetime, the nation he's called to go warn, they'll actually destroy the northern nation of Israel. They're wicked people. It's a great city. There's lots of them, and they're a threat to Israel. So Jonah does not want to go that way. And if you think about it like this historically, this would be like God asking a Jew during World War II to go to Hitler and Germany and evangelize them. Or today it would be like asking a Jew in Israel to go evangelize Hezbollah or Iran or Syria today. It's the same thing. Go tell this people that you know is opposed to you, you go warn them about the judgment I've got impending for them. And Jonah's not interested. He wants to head the other way. So instead of going overland to Nineveh, he heads down to the sea to go to Tarshish. Now, God says go east, so he's going west as far as he can. Tarshish, it's thought, was probably a city on coastal Spain. Part of my digression in this teaching is out of verse 3. This isn't specifically about uh, God's love for Jonah, his relationship, or with restoring others, but I do want to spend a little bit of time in verse 3. When Jonah flees, uh, what does he flee from in verse 3? It says, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So he's called to a job. But when he runs, it doesn't say he's running away from the job. It says he's running away from God. He's getting as far away from God and the job as he can. He's not just fleeing this task or this responsibility. He's running away from God. Now, on one hand, you say to Jonah, Jonah, can you really run away from God? Probably rationally, he'd say, well, no. You know, he's read Psalm 139 too. Lord, if I ascend, you're there. If I go down, you're there. You know the words before I speak them, etc. Where can I go from your presence? No place. But he's not thinking rationally. He's just he's responding emotionally. God wants me to go talk to those wicked Ninevites. No way. I'm running opposite direction as far as I can. But look at the language it says too. 
uh, he's going to go down away from the Lord, verse 3 says. Goes down to Jop, and then he goes down into the ship. And then notice too, it says, he's doing this on his own dime. He's going down, and he's doing so on his own dime. Jonah is not going where God wants him to. And so when the scripture, this is descriptive, when it says where he is going, it uses the term intentionally down. He's not going up. He's not going across. He's going down. When Jonah runs away from God, he's only going in one direction, and that's down. And it's interesting, he has no concept of how far down down is going to prove to be. All he's thinking is, I'm going to get away from God. I don't want to do what he wants. I'm going to get away from him, and I'm going down to do it. He just doesn't know where down ends up. You know, in the story, which we won't read here, but he gets on the ship, pays his fare, gets on the ship, heads out. And, of course, God sends this terrific storm. And the ship is going to sink. And these are seasoned mariners, and they know how to keep a ship afloat. They pitch over the cargo, and that's not going to help. They wake Jonah up, who's asleep in the boat, and they say, hey, call on your God. They, they throw lots, and the lot falls to Jonah. They say, who are you, and what's the deal? And he says, you know, I'm a servant. Funny, he doesn't look like one at the time, but I'm a servant of the Most High God, the one who made the seas and the land, and it's because of me that the storms come. Now, the Gentiles in the story are the heroes. The sailors, they know their, their trouble is because of Jonah. They're at risk because of what he's done. But they, they don't want to throw him over. He says, pitch me over. And what do they do instead? They try and save the boat instead with him on it. And it's only when they understand there's no way we're keeping this boat afloat that they reluctantly pitch Jonah overboard. And then he goes down, down, down. This downward journey started at Joppa and keeps going. And from chapter 2, listen to his description. When he finally cries out to God, it's from the depth of Sheol or it's from the depths of the grave. You cast me, God cast me down into the deep. The great deep engulfed me. I descended, I went down to the roots of the bottom of the mountains in the sea. My life was in the pit. Jonah thought getting away from God was only going down as far as going down to the town of Joppa and sailing across that sea to Tarshish. But he didn't realize that when he chose to leave God, going down was a lot further down than he'd ever planned or imagined. And when you and I make decisions to get away from God, this could be because we're running away from something we know he wants us to do, or it could be because we want something that we know he doesn't want from us. And so, you know, like a kid who takes the cookie from the cookie jar and he doesn't want mom or dad to see him. And what does he do? He turns his back in the corner, you know, turns away from him so he can nibble that cookie and not be seen as if their parents can't see them. Well, that's what Jonah's doing. And when you and I say, consciously or unconsciously, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Or I want that thing over there that I know he doesn't want from me. I turn my back on God and I go down and away. That's what happens. We're going down. And down is further away than we think when we start. Like Jonah, we think, oh, we'll just go down to Joppa. We'll just sail across that sea. Nope. Going down, when we leave God, going down is a lot further down than we ever cared to imagine from the start. When we choose to leave God... Going down is going to prove to be further down than we want to go. The other thing this says, which is interesting, it's just a small phrase, but it says, Jonah paid his own fare when he got on the ship. Jonah paid his way. He paid the fare for the ship for a ride he didn't even get to finish. 
but he paid his own way. Um, there's a commentator whose name slips my mind right now. Sorry. He says, he repeats it over and over again. When you, when you do something for God, he pays the way. When you do your own thing, you pay the way. And Jonah was paying his own fare here. He was going down on his own dime. Francis Schaeffer said, God's work done in God's way will have God's support. And, you know, there's missionaries all over the world, great stories about missionaries who left with nothing and God's support, sometimes miraculously so. God's work done in God's way will have God's support. If Jonah obeyed God and went overland to Nineveh, God would have paid the fare. But Jonah's going down and away, and Jonah pays the fare. Or Paul's word, remember Paul writes in prison from Philippi and he says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When you're a Christian walking with God, putting him and his things first, he provides to pay the bill. He promises to pay the bill. Having said that, you may not always like the provision. That is, the house he gives you might not be as big as you'd like or the car is new or shiny or the vacation is expensive or luxurious or whatever. But God says if you put him and his things first, Matthew 6, 33, he'll make sure your fares are covered. But Jonah is a living example, a reminder, a portrait, that when you and I choose to go our own way, we'll be picking up the fare. It'll be on our dime. We're going down, and we're going down on our dime. When Jonah's gone as far down as down can go, when he's gone down to the bottom of the sea, and remember, another lesson of Jonah is God's sovereign. And if he wants to do something, you're not going to be able to block his will. Jonah thought, God's told me to go do something. I'm not going to do it. Parents, by the way, I think this is a great example for parenting. There are sometimes battles with your children you cannot afford to lose where your kids have to know that you're going to win, period, whatever the cost, that you must win. And it's not for your sake, it's for theirs. God's a sovereign God. And if you haven't learned this yet, you will. There are times and seasons in your life in which he's going to require something, and you can kick and fight all you want. You're going to do it. You can go one way or you can go another. But you're going to go because God's sovereign, and he can overthrow your will and mine, and on occasion does. We don't know when those are going to be. We don't know the issues in which God says you're not going to do that or you are going to do that. But God's sovereign. And he took down Jonah down so far that Jonah says, okay, I give, I'll eat my peas, I'll go to Nineveh, I'll do whatever God's requiring me to do. Listen to his prayer, and you'll notice in chapter 2 it's his prayer of repentance and contrition. He's changing his view about God and what God's asked of him. It's written past tense as he's remembering this. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he called out, I called out of my distress to God, he answered me. I called for help from the depth of Sheol or the grave. You heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The currents engulfed me. Your breakers and billows passed over me. God, Jonah understands, was in control. I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, when he needed help and realized I need help, he knew where to turn. I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. 
but you've brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. I was fainting away. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Apparently, when he'd prayed to God in the, in the fish, he'd said, Lord, if you will, I will. He made a vow. We don't know what that means, but it probably meant making some sacrifice in the temple. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry, dry land. At this point, Jonah had gone down and away from God, ran away from God. God sovereignly controls the seas, takes him down further than he wanted to go until Jonah repents, changes his heart, changes his mind, and calls out to God for mercy and compassion and help, salvation. And he's restored to God. So the first important point, it's, it's happened right here. Jonah changes his mind. God wanted to restore Jonah to himself. Remember, Jonah ran away from God not just Nineveh. He ran away from God. So at this point, Jonah is restored in his personal relationship with God. The fish spits him out. He's back on dry land. He and God are good to go. So far, so good. Jonah's restored. But God is after more than that. And as you'll see in this next section, God wants Jonah to see his enemies, that is the Ninevites, the way God sees them. God wants Jonah to have God's compassion and heart for his enemy in the same way that God does. And that's the second half of the book. Chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Jonah, eat your peas, saying, Go to Nineveh, the great city. Proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Jonah rose up, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He obeys, doesn't second guess. It's not what he wants to do, but he does it. He goes and he says, Yet forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. By the way, this is a key phrase. The people of Nineveh believed in God. Genesis 15, when Paul tells us uh, what brought salvation to Abraham, what does he say? He says, Abraham believed in God, and God declared it to him as righteousness. That's exactly what these Ninevites do here. They believed in God. They were transformed. They did the same thing Abraham did. They did the same thing Jews did. They believed in God. And they called a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The king himself issued a proclamation. He said, By decree of the king and his nobles, don't let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing, don't let them eat or drink water. Man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Here's Nineveh. And just think of it in this, in this uh, context. Remember Jonah when he cries out to God in this prayer? He's sinking under the sea and he feels like he's going to drown, like he's going to die. Well, that's the same thing going on with Nineveh. Judgment, just like waters are covering Nineveh, and just like Jonah, they're crying out to God under the judgment, down further than they wanted to go, and they're crying out to God for mercy, just like Jonah did. Verse 9, Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we won't perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not 
do it. So Jonah preached. And by the way, this wasn't fancy. He didn't say much. He says, judgment's coming, guys. That's about it. 40 days, your history. He doesn't say, please believe. He doesn't plead with them at all. You know, the truth is because he doesn't care about them. So all he's doing is the minimum. He's just saying, God's going to judge you in 40 days. And they believed. Now, from God's perspective, or yours or mine, this is a good thing. Just think today, if somebody told you that you would be remembered in history or in eternity as one of the greatest missionary success stories of all time, and, and that's what Jonah is, uh, wouldn't that make you feel good? That you'd be encouraged, oh, this is a good thing. You know, and that's not what Jonah thinks. That's not the way he feels about it at all. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to warn them. All he does is the minimum, but they repent and they believe. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Instead of rejoicing, it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, wasn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? Back at the beginning of the story. Therefore, in order to forestall this or to keep this from happening, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Now, remember where Jonah came from, chapter 2. Jonah wants grace and compassion for himself. He just doesn't want it for anyone else. Or he doesn't want it for anybody outside his little circle or his little huddle. He's ready to cry out to God for compassion when he's in direct disobedience, running away from God and God's will. He's ready to turn around and cry out for grace and forgiveness, knowing God's compassionate, he just doesn't want that for those other guys. He wants it for himself, but not for them. In fact, isn't it funny? He's, he would rather die than see the Ninevites saved. You know, on a tangent, I was listening to a news story this morning. The commentator said this, related to Muslims towards Jews. He said they hate the Jews more than they love their own children. They hate the Jews more than they love their own children. That's why they're happy if their children blow themselves up if it means killing Jews. Their hatred for someone else is greater than their own love for their own children. Well, Jonah's kind of like that here. He would rather personally die than see the Ninevites saved. It's the same kind of dynamic. Hate, in a sense, stronger than love. He has failed at this point to get the second point God wants him to, which is, Jonah's been restored to God, but Jonah doesn't get God's heart towards people in general. It's not just the holy huddle with God and Jonah. God's out to save the world. You remember in the story, in the rest of chapter 4, we'll, we'll close here in just a second with it, but you remember Jonah goes outside the city. He kind of sits on a hill so he can watch. And, you know, his secret hope is still, at the end of that 40 days, God will still judge them. He's hoping. He doesn't think it's going to happen, but he's hoping. And as he's out sitting on that hill, God causes. Remember, God moved the sea. God's causing something here. God causes this plant to grow up in one day. And it brings this welcome shade to Jonah from the scorching heat, the sun and the wind. And he's happy to have this plant. Grows up in a day, gives him a little shade as he sits hoping to see Nineveh destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God also not only moved the sea and the fish 
and the plant, but then God moves this little worm to eat the bottom of that plant so that the plant dries up in a day. And Jonah's all bummed out about this because he liked that little plant. And the shade was nice. And God says to him in verse 10, You had compassion on the plant, which you didn't work, and which you didn't cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Joni, you're ticked and you're bummed because this plant I caused to grow up in a single day and took out in a single day, just like the grass in Isaiah, you know, sprouts up here today, gone tomorrow. And you're bummed out because this plant perished. This plant was destroyed and that upsets you. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons, not plants, people, who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals. And this is just an object lesson for Jonah. God says, you value a plant, but you don't value people. God says, my value is on people. The plant's meaningless. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. God's trying to get Jonah to see he values people. Jonah valued a plant but couldn't value people. 120,000 here. Not sure there's many elements of Jonah that are open to interpretation. This could mean kids. This could mean the juvenile portion of the population that's not old enough yet to know the difference between right and wrong. When it says uh, they don't know the difference between their right hand and their left, they don't know moral distinctions. They don't know right from wrong. If that's the case, and if these are just kids, then the population of the city would, of course, and this area would be much bigger. Or if it means the population in general, which seems more likely, just based on towns of, of that era and their sizes, it means basically God saying to Jonah, this whole people, they don't know the difference between right and wrong. You know, um, in Sunday school, by the way, uh, we'll be listening to a couple of uh, Palestinian and former Muslim Christians who will talk about what life was like for them, who are current, they're alive today. Um, what life was like growing up and the difference in their mentality over time. But they said, both of them say, that when they were raised, they were told from, from the earliest memories to hate the Jews. They were taught to hate Jews. This was just a given. And it didn't matter if they were Muslim or nominal, nominally Christian, Eastern Orthodox primarily in that part of the world. didn't matter. They were trained to hate Jews from their very early infancy. So if you talk about Muslims hating Jews today, they're taught this from their earliest days. And in that sense, you say, you know, part of the problem is they don't know their right hand from their left. They don't have real moral instruction. They never have. Well, God says about the Ninevites, morally, they don't know the difference between right and wrong. I mean, on the big picture, yes, they're responsible to God. They have revelation in nature, etc. They know there's a God to whom they'll give account. But they haven't had the Jews' benefit of the instruction of the law where God says, this is right, approve this, this is wrong. God looks at them and says, Jonah, you don't get it. These guys aren't like you. They weren't even trained. They weren't brought up to know the difference between right and wrong. Shouldn't I have compassion on them? And by the way, too, God mentions animals. He didn't have to say anything about animals, and normally you wouldn't. 
But just his inclusion of animals here, he cares even about destroying unnecessarily in judgment the animals in the city of Nineveh. You know, sometimes you'll see little kids taking pleasure or delight in being cruel to animals. You know, this is a thing you need to tell them. This is not appropriate. God said he didn't want to unnecessarily harm even the animals. If you read stories about serial killers, uh, you know what? Almost all of them, they're almost always boys, of course, and almost always their cruelty in life started with being cruel to animals. And it went up from there. God was concerned even about the animals that would be unnecessarily destroyed in Nineveh. Jonah forgot that Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. You know, when God takes Israel out of Egypt, he uses them as a club or a sword to dispossess the wicked nations in Palestine. You remember? You're you're to wipe out men, women, and children. You're not to leave any. When they occupied the land, he promised them. But you remember after that, his view was always that Israel would be the city on the hill and that the temple in Jerusalem would be a place where all the nations would come and find God. This is brought up in the New Testament as well. It was always God's plan that Israel wouldn't just be a club where God would judge unholy nations around them. Israel was meant to be the city on the hill, the beacon, the place from which God would show himself to the world. Jonah forgot that. To Jonah, it was was this holy huddle, just us and no others. In Genesis 12, 3, when God calls Abraham, he does start by saying, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. But he then says, in you, Abraham, and in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was always God's intention that Israel would be a blessing to the nations, not just a club of judgment. And Ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate descendant or seed of Abraham, and this will yet happen. You know, if you read Isaiah and some of the other minor prophets, you know the day will yet come when King Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, becomes the ruler of the world and the nations stream to Jerusalem to see their king. This will yet happen. Jonah forgot that God's plan for Israel was to be not just a club, but a light to the nations. In Romans 11, we quoted this last week when talking about Israel's future restoration, but listen to this. Romans 11.32, Paul has labored theologically in the book of Romans to show that Jews and Gentiles both are sinful, deficient people before God, and they need a righteousness that only Christ can provide. In verse 32, Paul says, God has shut up all in disobedience. That is, he's made sure everyone knows they fall short of the mark. Why is that? So that he may show mercy to all. He shut up Jews and Gentiles under disobedience and sin. Why? So that he can show compassion and mercy, not to a few, not just to the Jews, not to one select group, but to all. And then in verse 12 of that same chapter, Paul's talking about this transition that we live in times of Gentiles, the church, but that Israel would be, would be restored as a nation again. And Paul says this, if their, transgre- if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, that is, they rejected Jesus the Messiah, God takes that opportunity to bless the world through bringing in the Gentiles into the church, then Paul says, how much more will their fulfillment be? When Israel nationally is saved, 
if their rejection meant life, their salvation will mean even more life. Well, Jonah was forgetting that God always meant Israel to be a channel of blessing, not just to themselves, but to the world. It's interesting the way the book of Jonah ends. It ends with a question. God says, should I not show compassion? Should I not have compassion? And it's not answered. This book ends by asking a question. It's not answered. So when you and I read this book, we're left with this question. God's saying to us, shouldn't I show compassion to people who aren't like you? Some closing thoughts or questions. I take it most of us in here, we have been personally restored to God. And by the way, if you're, you're here this morning, you're not running as far as Jonah was to Tarshish. But if you know in your life you're running from God, uh, uh, turn around. Turn around. You know, Joppa ends up taking you a lot further down than you'd think when you start running away from God. So turn around. Call out to God. You'll get mercy and compassion. You'll be restored. That's a good thing. Being restored to God's a good thing. But he wants to take us beyond there. We're to love him and we're to love others. And when, of course, Jesus is asked, and who sh- who's my neighbor? Who should I love? Jesus says, well, gosh, maybe that despised Samaritan in your midst is the person you should love. Somebody who's not like you. Somebody who you think is your enemy. So just think of these questions and think of these this week. Do we value Muslims today? I mean today. I mean while they're bombing Israel and while they're sending terrorists around the world. Do we value Muslims today raised and trained to hate Jews and Americans? This is just like Jonah. And remember, the the nation he goes to, they, they wipe out his people in 40 years. The people he went to that God said, should I not have compassion on them? That's the people Jonah went to. And I'd say today, we are called to desire the salvation of Muslims no less than Jonah was called on to have compassion and mercy for the Ninevites. Same thing. Very same dynamics. People who would eventually destroy them, God still said, they don't know morally right from wrong. God says, I care about them. I have compassion for them. Do we value people of a different political persuasion within your own confines, within your borders? You know, it's easy. Elections Tuesday, I'd encourage you to go and vote. But it's easy in political discussions to see other people of a different political stripe from you as the enemy. And before God, they're not. And even if they don't know their political, moral, social right from left, God still says, should I not have compassion? Should I not have compassion? Do we share God's heart in desiring to see people different from us be brought to life in Christ? Or do we stand with Jonah in the corner, our backs to God saying, I won't, I won't, I won't. You can't make me. That's kind of the picture. It's childlike, it's infantile in the end. And isn't this interesting too? Why does God pick Jonah? Now just think, if your mission is to go save the Ninevites, you could say, I'm going to pick Joe because Joe will be a willing party to this and he'll go and do it. Why does he pick Jonah? Clearly because the point is more than God saving the Ninevites. It's because God wants him to know that he wants to save the Ninevites and he wants Jonah to take on his heart 
and his compassion. That's the second point of the book. He could have gone and had those Ninevites saved with a willing prophet, but he didn't. Jonah has been called the prodigal son story of the Old Testament for good reason. And it's funny, too, because of this. This, this story is full of irony. Jonah's the prodigal, and he's the older son. He's the prodigal who runs away and then comes back to dad, and he's the older brother resenting the prodigal Ninevites who might come back. He's wearing both hats. The prodigal son story of the Old Testament in which he wears both hats. How do you view yourself before God? Did you deserve God's grace more than somebody who's a different political group than you? Do you deserve God's grace more? Are you somehow special, holier, whatever, than someone born in Southeast Europe or the Middle East or China or across the street? You know, in the end, the point is, of course, Jonah wants God's compassion, but he doesn't want it for anybody else. And God says, Jonah, I'm compassionate to all, and I want to show my compassion on you, and I'm going to show it on people who aren't like you, people outside your holy huddle. And I think it's easy to develop this mentality in which we funnel God's grace and compassionate down to good people like us. Because somehow we're deserving. But the truth is, in the end, we're not. Jonah was no more deserving of God's grace and compassion than the Ninevites. Paul says God shut us all up under judgment, under sin. Why? So he can show mercy to all. Remember what it said of Jesus? Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, though he will, but he came to save the world. And he's inviting us through Jonah to share his heart, not just to be personally restored to him, but to have his same heart of compassion towards others who don't know him. That's the bottom line. Jonah's a story not just about a fish. It's a story about loving God personally and loving our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is even those people who would harm you if they could. And you remember, life on this earth short. Eternity, forever. You know, uh, Jim Elliott and his group in South America, do you remember they made a pact with themselves before they went and evangelized these very, very hostile South American Indians? You remember they made a pact with themselves? They would not harm them. Physically, they would not harm them. And so even though when the Indians came and were, and were physically were killing them in that river in South America, they had guns and they didn't shoot any. They could have defended themselves and they didn't because they got the big picture. They understood life on earth, short. Eternity lasts forever. They were willing to lay down their lives knowing where they were going, knowing who they belonged to, if God could use that to bring these other people who would otherwise end up in eternity without Christ. So they'd made up their mind ahead. And this is why Christians can send missionaries to hostile areas of the world. Because we know who we belong to. We know where we're going. And we're sharing God's heart for others, His compassion when we go willingly sometimes or not to the Ninevehs of the world 
and share God's compassion with them. And in the end, just remember, when God sends Jesus to the earth, he's sending Jesus to a hostile environment. He's sending Jesus to a people who will hate him, despise him, mock him, and kill him. That's his compassion, so that he can save them. And Jonah didn't get it, but I, I'm, I'm convinced. This is, what, this is what we're supposed to get from Jonah. Great fish story, lots of fun things in it. But God's saying, it's not enough to just enter into this happy relationship with me. He wants those who know him to share his compassion for those who don't. Lord, today as uh, bombs fly in the Middle East and as terrorists uh, have plots in the United States and Asia around the world to harm those that they hate, Father, I pray that you would keep our hearts and our spirits above the fray, that you would remind us that life on this earth is short, that people's lives, Lord, are brief, and that you're aiming and you're looking for eternity and to bring in folks to know and love and benefit in a relationship with you forever. And I pray, Father, whether it's neighbors down the street for us that don't treat us right, whether it's people of a different political persuasion from us, or whether it's physically people in other nations who would do us harm, I pray that when you ask us the question, should I not have compassion, that we answer yes. And I pray, Lord, in all the ways you mean to, and I know that sovereignly you have plans for all of us, Father, that you'll help us answer the call when you want us to show your compassion to someone else. In Jesus' name, amen.